and the ushers were giving out some pages for today's lesson. At the top it says the heart of the matter, and we'll get to those notes in just a moment. A reminder of just a few things, our Community Institute for Adults that meets midweek on Wednesdays concludes this Wednesday. So the three adult classes that have been going on, Discovering Intimacy with God and the Book of Acts and How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, those three classes all end this Wednesday. But the following week, the following week, uh, Dr. Combs is going to be uh, teaching a class on using some free uh, study software. So if you have any interest in that, even if you have not been in any of the three classes we've been doing, you're welcome to come. And uh, on the 27th, a week from Wednesday at 7 o'clock, we'll start at 7.15 actually, and Dr. Combs will lead that. It's just one session on how to use this uh, software. And another announcement is that family camp deposit is due one week from today. If you're thinking about going to family camp, we need to know how many are coming so that uh, we know we have enough space. And we're asking for one-third of your total as a deposit so you can see what the costs are in the program and then uh, and then uh, calculate that. And you can pay that at the uh, resource center. Do that today or next week if at all possible. All right, everybody should have some paperwork. The top right-hand corner says side-by-side. Side. If you don't, John's got some. Last call, Larry's got some. Side-by-side. Side. This is our third session in this series, and it's about God's call to us to be in relationship with one another because we are needy and we are called to, to help, both of those. So let me review as quickly as I can that going all the way back to the beginning, the reason that we would look at material like this and the Bible would include so much that's related to it is because God is relational. God himself is relational. That our God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the eternal, true and living God has always been God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Before there was anything created, God was in, uh, in, in community with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God himself is relational, and therefore life is relational. God's relational, and so therefore he made us to be relational. One of the reasons then the Bible says it is not good for man to be alone is because we are made to reflect God fully in his character. The primary relationship in which, that God gave in order for that to happen is marriage, but not the only relationship. And those who are not married are to still be in relationship. God is relational, and so life is relational. And we were made for relationships because that emulates God, but also because as humans we're needy. Just by virtue of being creatures, we have creaturely, creaturely needs. And so we are in relationship with God and with others in order to have those needs met just as humans. If there had never been sin in the world, we would still be in relationship and we would still have needs as creatures who are dependent. But then as sinful humans, our needs are all the more and additional. Because now we need one another in order to help one another, not just with our natural needs, but with our supernatural needs, our spiritual needs. 
as well. So for both of those reasons, we are needy. We're human creatures and we are sinful creatures as well. So this series, Side by Side, has two major sections to it. One that we're in now showing that we are all needy. And then the next one to show that we are all to be helpers. We're all in need of help, but we are all to be people who give help uh, as well. And you have in front of you pages five through nine, I think it is, for today. But there were pages one through four. Most of you got those. If you didn't get pages one through four and you want them, then uh, let the folks at the information center know and we will email those to you and get those to you in any way that's convenient for you. But on page two of those notes from the first two weeks, we saw that life is that that we are needy. And then on page three, we saw that life is hard because things break down, particularly as you add sin to the mix. Our bodies break down. Our relationships break down. We have pressures and difficulties at work. We have we have spiritual evil and the world insinuating itself upon us. And then above all of that and involved with all of that is God him God himself. So life is hard and there are all of these aspects of the difficulty of life that are involved. We saw on page three. And then last week we saw that our hearts are active in all of this. And that's what page five is about. That's really page five is a repeat of most of what we looked at uh, last week, that our hearts are active in all of the situations of life and the heat of life reveals the desires of our hearts. The heat of life exposes, reveals the desires of our hearts. When things go wrong, that shows what we really care about. And I'm going to beat on that for a bit today. But on page five, if you were with us last week, we saw that our active hearts are central to our neediness. The Bible teaches that the heart is the control center of the individual and our desires, thoughts, words and actions come from our hearts. And you see all of these passages that say as much. And then when you get down to the very last passage listed there from Ezekiel 14 that says men have set up idols in their hearts. And we saw that then it is possible to be idolatrous without having a physical idol to which you bow down. But rather we have set up idols of someone or something in our hearts. In the middle of page 5, we have the anatomy of idolatry. The word and should not be there. I apologize. The anatomy of idolatry. Our hearts can manufacture idols of anyone or anything. John Calvin is credited as saying, the human heart is a factory of idols. An idol is anyone or anything that is valued more than God. The objects of our idolatry, we saw last week, are not always or even usually evil in themselves. In fact, idols are often good persons or things. So, it's been said that idolatry is often found in wanting good things too much. And how do we know whether an object or person has become idolatrous? How do I know if I want this good person or good thing too much? Well, we have at the bottom of page 5, we know that someone or something has become an idol when A, we're willing to sin in order to get it or them. B, we're willing to sin in the absence of having it or them. It has simply become too, it or they have simply become too important to us if we're willing to sin in order to get or in the absence of having. And you can ask yourself this question at the bottom of page 5, an idol 
is whatever you could place in the following blank. I would be satisfied if only I had. And you fill in the blank. And if you need an extra sheet of paper, let me know. <laughs> and we'll, we'll get that to you. Now, if you turn to page six, we've seen now in two weeks that we need help because there are the circumstances of life Bodies that break down, relationships that break down, work that is is difficult. You've got spiritual evil and the world pressing upon us. You've got all of that. And then you've got our active hearts, each of us individual. And now this today is designed to put those together. Hard circumstances meet active, busy hearts. And this then zeroes in on why we are so why we are so needy. Troubling circumstances will always come. Now, don't answer this except to yourself. But do you believe that? Job chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. As surely as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. Now, I'm asking you if you believe that. And my guess is, if I ask you to raise your hand, everybody would raise their hand. If nothing else, to be polite because everybody else is raising their hand. But the truth is, there are our stated beliefs and then there are our functional beliefs. There's what I say I believe and what I really believe. And I know what I really believe when something goes wrong. And you know what you really believe when something goes wrong. And you know, friends, this whole exercise in churchiness is frankly useless. If we don't take what we say we believe here and take it to the streets Monday through Saturday. So it, it really doesn't do us any good for us to say we believe this stuff on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, it's a different deal. So there's what I say I believe and there's what I really believe. And what I really believe shows up in life, not at church. <laughs> what shows up as church is the churchy you. What shows up in life is the real you and me. And then when life is hard, it exposes what I really believe. So when something happens to you, it's okay for you to ask, why this? In fact, we're going to see that Jesus does, did that on the cross. You know, why, why this? And why this way? But... We already know the answer to why me, don't we? If we if we believe what we say, if we believe what I was talking about in the first hour, you know, where God is justified in destroying all all humanity because of cosmic treason against him in sin, if we really believe that, then I should never be saying, "Well, why me?" How do I deserve better than anybody else? In fact, I already have much more than I deserve. And the Bible teaches, and and one of its central themes is God's grace, giving us what we don't deserve, right? 
undeserved favor from God? So why would then people who say they believe that on Sunday, then on Tuesday say, why me? And so I mentioned last week that it's best to ask how, how, Lord, can I grow in this? How can I bring glory to you in this? But troubling circumstances will always will always come. And we have in our churches, I believe, including ours, it's easy for us to adopt a prosperity gospel approach. And we would say we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. You know what that is? That's Joel Osteen. That's all the dudes on TV. You know, if, if you plug it in the right way, if you do the right things, it's going to go well with you. God's design for you is for you to prosper and for everything to go and for everything to go well with you. Healthy and wealthy. And these people just haven't read the Bible. They abuse the Bible when they when they teach that. Some of the best of God's people, some of the greatest of God's people that no one in this room could hold a candle to all had extremely difficult lives. But, but we adopt some of that. We would all say, no, I don't believe prosperity gospel. But when something happens and goes wrong, then all of a sudden your prosperity gospel kicks in. Hey, this was not supposed to happen. Because I did all the right stuff. I crossed my T's and I dotted my I's. And God, I thought I held up my end of the bargain. I've been going to church all these years. And I've been doing the stuff that you told me to do. And then this. That was not supposed to be part of the picture. And yet God never told you that whatever it is would not be part of the picture. He never told you that. In fact, he told you quite the opposite. Trouble will come. And that's why you all have heard me say over the years that even though I don't know what's happening in your life, I know this. You're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're fixing to go into a trial. I'm just here to encourage you, okay? You're either in one, you just came out of one, or you're going into one. Because that's life in that's life in a fallen world. So that's not just a throwaway line at the top of page six. Troubling circumstances will always come. Life is hard. When difficult circumstances and our hearts meet, a conversation breaks out between the two, back and forth, back and forth. And that conversation can be wise and helpful, or it can be foolishness that parades as wisdom. Our troubles usually start with an internal conversation. This is painful. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? Then it gets messy. Spiritual beings whisper, does God really care? Can his words be trusted? Our hearts can submit to those questions and we can adopt them as our own. Maybe he doesn't really care. Wouldn't a good father protect his children from these things? But meanwhile, God himself speaks. We could condense God's many words this way. Look to Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead. The crucified one who suffered, he is the evidence of unfailing love in affliction. Now, read that again. The crucified one who suffered is the evidence of unfailing love in affliction. In the midst of whatever you've got going on, the fact that God came to earth and as man suffered on your behalf 
is proof of his unfailing love in the midst of what you have going on. Now, you've heard atheists say, and I beat on them back a couple of weeks ago on Easter, and I said, atheists will say things like, I can't believe in a God who would, and then there's all these bad things that God allows to to happen. Well, when, when they say that, and I point it out, that's not really saying anything about God's existence. That's saying something about whether you like the God who exists, whether or not you like the way he runs things. That's a different issue. But behind that question, when we say things like it, we wouldn't say, I can't believe in a God. We would just question God. Why does God let this happen? And we're really asking, what is God like? What is God's character like? And it is true that in a fallen world, with all the calamity and all the difficulties that befall us and others in a fallen world, that these troubling questions come to our minds. When earthquakes happen, I've got on my phone, I get alerts from the Associated Press. And in the last couple of days, I've gotten like three different parts of the world that have had these large earthquakes going on in in totally different parts of the world. And you, you get something like that and you go, I know why this happens. I know the earth is convulsing under its fallenness, according to Romans 8. That the, that the earth itself is cursed and these kinds of calamities happen because of that. I know the right answer to that, but I still just kind of murmur to myself, wow, why? And it didn't happen here. But behind all of that, we're really asking, what is God like? And let me just encourage you, whenever that thought comes to your mind, why is God letting this happen? Behind it is really, what is the character of God like? Does God really care? And when you ask that question, answer it this way. He came. And if he doesn't care, he doesn't come. If God doesn't care, then God doesn't come to this fallen world. But God came. The God-man came to earth And even though we don't know why he allows particular things at particular times, we know why bad stuff happens. And as we ask questions about then the the character of God shrouded in other words, but that's what they come down to, always remember that the fact that he came shows that he cares. And that's what that line is saying in your notes. The crucified one who suffered is the evidence of unfailing love and affliction. Suffering raises many questions, and for most of those questions, you'll have to to trust me that my love is more sophisticated than you know, says God. Our task is to hear God's voice, believe his words, and follow Jesus even when life is hard. And if you go down a paragraph, the question is, who wins among these voices? Who will have the final word? But meanwhile, as these internal conversations go on, you know, there's there's you thinking about it uh, to yourself. This is painful. Why is it happening? And then, and then the accuser is insinuating himself on your thoughts. Does God really care? And God is speaking through his word to you and his truth. And who's going to win? Who's going to have the final word? Meanwhile, the conversation actually changes the experience of suffering. For example, if we respond with everything is meaningless and God does not care, our pain will be worse. 
If we respond with, I don't understand all this, but I know that my Father loves me and I trust Him, we will live with purpose, hope, and perseverance. If we remember the promises of God in our testing and turn to Him, trouble can feel light and momentary. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says. Our light and momentary troubles are outweighed by the hope of eternity, right? So two people, here's what that paragraph is saying. Two people can experience the same circumstance in radically different ways. It depends on the heart that you're bringing to it and the conversations then that arise from that heart, these internal conversations. Two people experience the same circumstance in radically different ways, depending on the heart they bring to it. So you're in a traffic jam. Let's just start easy. Okay, traffic jam. Two people can experience the traffic jam radically different ways, right? You got the one person who they have an hour long commute every day to work and back, two hours. And out of that commute, five days a week, two days a week, it involves some kind of mishap on average. And that person gets steamed every time they're in this traffic jam. And their blood pressure goes up. And they're yelling at people inside their car. They can't go anywhere, but they beep their horn. They think about going on the shoulder. Maybe they actually go on the shoulder. If this is you, don't want any confessions to me. (laughs) So you've got all that going on. You're shaved off. I'm no doctor, but I'm saying you're shaving off five years of your life. Because you got the blood pressure thing going, all, you know, all the time, and you're all. And then somebody else can bring a, diff, a totally different set of circumstances and perspective on that. I got some time to talk to the Lord. Let me let me recommend that to you. Okay, you get in the traffic jam. Say, I've got some time to talk to the Lord. And by the way, you don't always have to close your eyes when you pray. So. <laughs> Let me recommend that as well (laughs) as you're driving. But two people can bring a totally different perspective to the same circumstance depending on the heart that they bring to it. And that's why the same circumstance can be for one person a temptation to sin and to another person an opportunity to grow. The same circumstance can be for one person a temptation to sin and for another person an opportunity to grow. Now, I'm convinced the Bible teaches what I just said. That's why I said it. And I'm convinced it teaches this in James chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, take a look at James chapter 1. And the claim I'm making is the same circumstance can be to one person a temptation to sin, to another person an opportunity to grow. Now, I have opened in front of me my NIV 1984. They updated the NIV in 2011. I own a 2011 version. If you stole my 2011 version NIV, 
There will be an amnesty 15 minutes after, after we're done here for it to appear, reappear on my desk, okay? But I have my 1984, so if there's a, a couple of words difference, the, it'll be substantially the same. But verse 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. I threw in the ancestors, that's 2011. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, so those three verses, verses 2 through 4, say that difficult circumstances, trials, from God's standpoint, have an ultimately good purpose. And that is to develop uh, character with, within us. For us to develop perseverance, and then we become mature, not lacking anything. So God's got a good purpose for this thing that he allows into your life, whatever the thing looks like. And by the way, the thing might look like a person. Don't call them that. But the trial might be a relationship. So the trial is a diagnosis, the trial is a circumstance, or the trial might be embodied in a person. But you've got, you've got this trial, and God has a good intention for that trial. But whether or not that good intention is going to be realized depends upon the heart and the beliefs you bring to it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is doing something for you rather than to you in the midst of the thing? If not, now that trial, which is designed to make you better and an opportunity for growth, becomes an occasion for temptation to sin. And why do I say that? If you go down to verse 13, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Now, what's interesting to me about this is the word back up in verse 2 that says, when you face trials of many kinds, and the, verse, and the, and the Greek word in verse 13 are the same word. Trial and temptation are the same word. So why does, why does James, or, or why do our English translators translate it in the one verse, a trial, and the other verse, temptation? Because they're dealing with two different purposes and two different responses. In verses 2 through 4, it's dealing with God's purpose in allowing this to happen. It's a trial to make you better. And that happens if you believe that and if you respond accordingly. The trial achieves its work. But you've got people who can have the same trial, the same situation, and it becomes a temptation to sin. Why? Because they've reacted completely differently. They don't believe what they said they believe. They don't believe that God is in, a good God is in control. They may believe God is in control, but they don't believe a good God is in control. You guys hear that? It's one thing to believe God's in control, but you could be ticked at him because of the way he's controlling. But a good God is in control. And only the person who believes that is going to mature and lack nothing through the, as a result of the trial. But the person who doesn't believe that when is tempted to sin, 
And so verse 13 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted by his own evil desire. So he's dragged away and enticed. So you're in the midst of the thing, but the heart you bring to the thing determines whether or not it's a trial that makes you better or a temptation to sin. The same person can react, two people can react radically differently to the exact same circumstance. So before we turn the page, I want to encourage you to think about the circumstances you are in. And how do you see those? And how do you see the, the hard circumstance, the hard relationship that God has allowed into your life? Bottom of page six, in this back and forth, it is in this back and forth that we need help. Even those who seem strong in their faith can be left wobbly by sufferings that threaten the things they love most. Now, we have these internal conversations, and some of them go better than others. There are some conversations in which the heart does not want help. We've had enough, and we're adamant, and no words from God or other people are going to sway us. Here is one of those. person says, God, you have no heart. He was a quiet God-fearer. Some would call him shy. Neighbors rarely heard him speak, though they would say he was a good neighbor. When he was removed from his home and relocated to a Hungarian ghetto, he was the same old person, as if nothing had changed. But when he was herded into a truck that was far too small for the dozens of people on board, when the trip was in its second and then third day without water, when guards opened the doors every few hours and randomly rammed the butts of their rifles onto infirmed heads, and when people were dying around him, his heart finally responded. His circumstances dominated the inner free-for-all. Almighty God, why have you done this to us? Have you no heart, no feelings? Have you no eyes to see with? Have you no ears to hear with? You are wicked, as wicked as a man. It's the end of the conversation. He indicted God and felt there was nothing more to say. Rather than borrow the words from the Psalms of David, he responded with his own anti-Psalm, and he was sticking with it. Now, you look at that circumstance and ask yourself how you would respond, especially given how you're responding with the stuff you've got going on now. Here's a better one, though, middle of page 7. Nothing has changed. A 54-year-old father of four had a long history of walking with Jesus. One of his routines was to read a psalm every day, and Psalm 22 was one of his favorites. Since he had done this for decades, he certainly was accustomed to speaking honestly to the Lord in all circumstances, and he too could condense his reactions into a few words. During a routine exam, his physician noticed a highly irregular lesion on his shoulder, which he biopsied and sent to the pathology lab for testing. The results would be back in about 10 days. The physician was clearly concerned and suggested the patient return to the office to discuss the results and consider whatever further treatments might be helpful. Ten days later, he made the visit accompanied by his wife. The doctor got right to the point. I have bad news. The lesion is cancerous. What does that mean? What is the treatment and prognosis? It is a malignant melanoma, one of the most aggressive cancers. At this point, the only treatments we have are experimental. And they've not shown much promise. And the prognosis? I'm very sorry. Life expectancy is usually between 9 and 12 months. He thanked the physician for being helpful, clear, and forthright. They arranged a follow-up appointment to talk about experimental treatments. He and his wife left the office, and they cried together. 
His first words were, nothing has changed. In the face of the worst possible circumstance for both himself and his family, he said nothing has changed. His heart and its clear-eyed knowledge of Jesus hijacked the internal conversation and essentially said this. If you think that news of my death will change my confidence in God's love toward me, it won't. His son gave his life for me. Why would I think he would love me less now? He loved me yesterday when everything seemed to be going well. Nothing has changed. He loves me today, too. Wouldn't you love to be mature enough to be able to say that when you get that diagnosis? The only way you will be is if in the stuff that God's allowing in your life now, you're trusting God. You see, that guy didn't come to that and then just all of a sudden flip a switch and he's trusting God. He's been trusting God all the way through. He's been trusting God in the small stuff so that now he can trust God in the big stuff. Now, she's going to be really mad at me. But I am going to mention a dear sister in our congregation who has learned to do this. So last Monday, I was over visiting the Charbonneau's. And I was there for about two and a half hours. And we talked about what God has allowed to come into Peggy's life. And she said, you know, I, I don't know what God wants, wants me to do with my remaining time. And I said, you know, I don't know what all God wants you to do either. But I know he wants you to continue to do something you're already doing. Namely, you are teaching all of us how to trust God. You're teaching all of us how to do that every day and every week. And we all need to see that in the stuff that we're going through. And we're seeing that in Peggy, aren't we? From minute one of her diagnosis, it's whatever the Lord has for me. I trust Him. And that has not wavered at all. And I said to her, you remember Dan Elwert? A bunch of you remember Dan Elwert in our church? The Lord took Dan in January of 2010. But in the run up to that, as his kidneys failed and dialysis would no longer help him, and he, and he died, in the run up to that, it was a long period of time where Dan never wavered in his trust in the Lord. And to this day, people in our church still talk about Dan and the way he handled that difficulty and his unwavering trust in God to this day. Now, God wants us to be those kind of people. God wants us to be people who trust in him and that internal conversation goes like this with whatever's happening in our lives. But friend, you will never be a Dan Elwert. You will never be a Peggy Charbonneau if in the thing you got going right now, you're not trusting God. It's in every day, week in, week out, month in, month out, trust in the Lord, come what may, 
He loves me. He loved me yesterday. And he loves me no less today because of this thing. Top of page eight. Second paragraph. That was the final word. There was so much to do and many tears would follow. Indeed, he asked for prayer from family and friends, for faith, for hope, for love, but he never revised that initial conversation even though he died surrounded by his family a year later. Here's the best, one of these internal kind of conversations. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus has gone before us and shows us how to respond to hardships, how to have the heart conversation with God. This is how Jesus responded to his suffering. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from, my, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Honest, open cries spoken to the Father. This was his way of responding to hardships. He begins with questions. Why is this happening? How could this be? Why are you so far away? Why don't you answer? Jesus' words seem shocking in their desperation, yet he authorizes the use of these very words in our own troubles. What's especially important, however, is that he's not grumbling or challenging God. He's crying out and directing his words to the promise-making and promise-keeping God who really does hear. Doing this is much harder than it looks, given our tendency to turn inward in our pain. Since it makes no sense that his father would be silent and distant, he continues... You are, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. His cry to the Father goes in many directions. Praises the Father and speaks of desperate times in Israel's past when God rescued and delivered them. Jesus does spiritual battle by always bringing the conversation back to his Father's reliable and proven words and deeds. There's no chaos here. The voice of the Father has clear authority over all others. It goes on. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. So in the midst of his dire circumstances, he calls out to the one who hears and acts. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And the conversation continues. He moves effortlessly from pleas for help to declarations of deliverance. The declarations reach their zenith when Jesus brings past, present, and future together, even from the cross, and finishes his plea with, you have rescued me. From there he goes public with his praise and considers the certainties of the future. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All who you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The father, Jesus says, has not hidden his face. The father has heard his cries. Then Jesus reminds us to turn to the Lord, for he's done good to us. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is one of many psalms that will help us learn how to direct our inner conversations with God when, not if, trouble comes. 
There are an endless number of ways to conduct that dialogue. Psalm 22, however, deserves special attention because it was Jesus' most anguished cry. As such, it can be a template for our own misery, no matter how extreme it is. And we end on page 9 with the counsel to keep talking and growing during trouble. The truth is you have those internal conversations going on all the time. You guys remember last summer we did a series called Mind Games? How to, uh, how to think for and about yourself. And I mentioned there that in our minds we have these conversations going on all the time. And those conversations and how they go will determine then the things we, we say about our circumstances and the way we act within them and the attitudes and emotions we experience in them. So at the bottom of page 9, we say the same. Keep talking. You are going to talk to yourself, but make sure they are the right kinds of conversations. So we keep talking to God, not grumbling about Him. Most of us fall between the two extremes of Psalm 22 and the anti-Psalm of that man facing Nazi oppression. Most of us have our moments when suffering has the power to turn our heads hard. For some, that place is even as simple as a flat tire or some mechanical mishap, especially if it's one of many. For others, the line is not crossed until the life of a loved one's in jeopardy. Yet for people like the Apostle Paul and the man who said nothing has changed, there is no line. No amount of suffering can shake their confidence in God. I fear that my own line is closer to the flat tire. With God's help, we grow. We aspire to make the Psalms more and more our own. When trouble comes and the free-for-all breaks out, we will be able to restore order. If order doesn't come, we get more help. We aim to create our own psalms in which, one, we pour out our complaint to the Lord. Two, review God's promises and His faithfulness. Three, find our rest and comfort in Jesus. And four, let others know that they too can find rest and comfort. Then, when we falter, we ask for help and we do it all again. One of the critical spiritual skills for every believer of Jesus is to bring order to the internal ruckus and grow in trouble rather than rage or wither in it. Tribulation will not win in the end. In the midst of the physical misery, we can have hope. And hope is one of our most valued responses to the difficulties of life. And friends, that applies to every person here and every relationship and every circumstance that we have. Let's ask God to help us to put that into practice this coming week. Our Father, we thank you that we can ponder these issues of how you are at work, not just in your world in general, but in our worlds in particular. You are the God of the universe, and yet you have the ability to focus your attention completely on us. You can focus your attention on me and everybody else fully at the same time. So, Lord, you have never, ever, there will never be a time where you have forgotten me. There will never be a time where you have forgotten us. There is never a thing that comes into my life that you do not know and ordain. And that's true for my brothers and sisters here as well. And so, Lord, we can experience these things, difficult though they be, as the great apostle, as this brother about whom we read this morning, with a diagnosis of cancer, but nothing changes. 
He knew you loved him the day before. You will love him for the rest of his life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow him all the days of his life. And he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's true for us too. And Lord, we thank you for the example of those who believed that and lived that. We thank you for those that are listed in your word in Hebrews chapter 11, who by belief, by faith, were able to endure and obey in the midst of, all of them, of difficulty. We thank you in our own day for people who believe your word just as strongly. I thank you, Lord, for the testimony of our brother Dan who lives on. I thank you that he has the joy of his Savior now. But I thank you for what he left behind as well, in his memory and in his example. And I thank you for Peggy. And I thank you for what you've done in her life and are doing in her life and through her life. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue then to use her in that way. And that, and that we would each aspire to be those kinds of people. We're believers, Lord. We believe you. We didn't just believe you when we asked you to save us from hell. We believe you when the diagnosis is difficult, when the tire is flat, when the, when the circumstances are hard. We still believe you. Help us to be those people. Help us, Lord, today and tomorrow and this week in whatever situation you call us to, to put that into practice. We cannot do it without your aid, but with your Holy Spirit and the promises of your word, we most certainly can. So we go this week with confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. And we ask you to bless this week for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.